0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Have you ever asked the question, what is the opposite of being fragile? It's an interesting thought, actually. And the only real good term is anti-fragile. Well, in today's Daily Thunder, Dan McConaughey is going to be talking about What does it mean to be anti-fragile in our faith? It's the idea that when we're dropped, it's not that we break, that'd be fragile, but that if we were dropped and we experience hardship, we actually grow stronger because of it. Now, before we dive into that message, I just want to remind any Ellerslie alumni that we have our upcoming alumni summit this October 11th through the 17th. It's going to be a powerful time to come together as Ellerslie alumni and seek the Lord together. To learn more about how you can join the Ellerslie Alumni Summit this upcoming October, or to learn how you can become an Ellerslie alumni by participating in one of our training programs, please visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily for more information. Now, let's dive into this message as Dan McConaughey talks about the importance of being anti-fragile
1: so a while back some time ago there was this fellow who he was actually born in 1960 so he's about 60 and when he was 12 he was reading through the dictionary and that's what I used to do as a kid I'd read the dictionary by the time I was 10 I had read the Encyclopedia Britannica all the way through. And so this guy kind of caught my eye that he was reading the dictionary when he was 12. But he was looking for something specific. He was looking for antonyms. Who knows what an antonym is? You. (laughs) A word that means the opposite of the word that is in question. And he found a word and he was checking out the antonyms, and he thought those aren't antonyms of that word. And the word was fragile. And he thought, you know, fragile means that you can take a a piece of crystalware, a piece of fragile crystalware and drop it on the rocks, and it breaks. But the antonyms that he found for it were robust, and resilient, which means that you can drop it on the rocks, and it doesn't break. So you'd think, well, isn't that the opposite? No, if you drop it on the rocks and it breaks, anti-fragile would mean that you drop it on the rocks and it gets stronger and better. And so that revolutionized his entire life. And... He actually wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. That in it, he demonstrates that all thriving systems are anti-fragile. In other words, when they are accosted, who knows what that means? Anybody know what accosted means? Hmm? No, no. When somebody accosts you, that means that they come up to you in a less than friendly way. It's like a very weak attack type of thing. If you're accosted, somebody says, what are you doing? Rather than hitting you in the face or something like that. (laughs) So when you are accosted, when, when any system that thrives and flourishes is accosted by random chaotic stressors. It makes that system stronger. And so we have this thing, it's a continuum. A continuum is a continuous sequence in which the the adjacent elements are just minutely changed all the way till you get from one end to its opposite at the other end. So we'll call this continuum from fragile to anti-fragile. And as we progress through it, we do find robust and resilient. For example, in uh, Ephesians 4, it says so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children are fairly fragile. A lot of times if you drop them, they break. (laughs) Some of us may have been dropped on our head, and it never fixed. But we can look at fragility in scripture and find it. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 30, that talks about how David came back to Ziklag after the Chaldeans had come in and destroyed it, burned it to the ground, stolen all the people, all the goods, all the cattle, all the children, all the wives, stole it all. So David comes riding in with his 600 mighty men. And they were fragile. They got mad, and they decided that they were going to stone David. They were fragile. David, on the other hand, it says, withdrew and encouraged himself in the Lord and said, guys, let's go after him. We will return with everything. And they did. David was not fragile, and he didn't remain the same either. He went and got stronger. He encouraged himself in the Lord so that he could carry out the recovery of everything. So as we go along, we find out that in order to get to anti-fragile, you have to go through the resilient-robust part. Now, resilient is a little bit different than robust. Robust Actually, it's the Latin word for an oak tree. Now, keep that in mind, okay? What are you supposed to keep in mind? That robust is an oak tree, and it's that place in the middle. okay? Now, do you remember the parable? I think it would be considered a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 7. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And it says that the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And what did it do? It stayed the same. It didn't fall. It wasn't fragile. It was robust. It stayed the same. But it didn't get better. It didn't all of a sudden have a new roof and nice new siding and new fixtures in the bathrooms. And it, it didn't get better. It stayed the same. We'll never make it, though, to anti-fragile unless we remain robust and resilient. Resilient, on the other hand, means that when you're deformed, you know, you take a plastic cup and you squeeze it and you let go of it, and it pops back. It doesn't break, but it doesn't get any better either. It's hard for a plastic cup to get better. In Ephesians 6, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. That's still being robust standing firm. But if we go a little bit further along, Jesus gives another example in John two, John 12, 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so... Those of you who have a background in farming, agriculture, if you sowed a bushel of corn, and in order to reap it, you had to go out and dig up those seeds and come back with your bushel of corn, that would be what? Hmm? It would be tedious, it would be difficult, and it would just be the same as you ever had. How about if you let it grow and and every, every time you harvested, you harvested the amount of seed that you planted? That would not be so good. But Jesus makes a point. He says, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So there we have something where it was impacted with something that caused its death. And yet the result was something more, better, greater. It came back. In Second um, Corinthians 12.9, Paul says about Jesus, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. You remember in Philippians, he said, I've learned how to be content in every circumstance. Every circumstance. Now, some of his circumstances were content-worthy, as far as we're concerned. Some of them were not. When he wrote Philippians, he was in a prison. He was in what they call the Praetorian prison, the Praetorian guard. And it's a unique place because it was for the the high-quality prisoners. And they took their prime young men, their prime young men, and handcuffed one to each of Paul's arms for six hours at a stretch. Now, knowing what type of guy Paul was, he saw them as captive audiences. (laughs) Because four four times a day, he got a new audience. And they couldn't leave. They just couldn't leave. And so what do you suppose they heard if he purposed to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified? What do you suppose they heard? Now, here's the interesting story from this, is that the guards in the Praetorian Guard, that was their last posting before they were sent out to manage a regiment on the borders of the Roman Empire. And it's really interesting now because we have these records of churches popping up in the little towns where there were regiments all along the borders of the Roman Empire. Well, what was that? That was the anti-fragility of Paul, who didn't get upset with the fact that he was in prison. Oh, I can't stand this. This is terrible. I'm going to appeal. What would have happened if the not the ACLU, the ACLJ. The ACLJ is like the Christian ACLU. If they had secured his release, or even what would have happened if they had secured Joseph's release? Remember, Joseph was in prison. He got um, sold into captivity by his brothers, who sold him... Potiphar and then he got falsely accused and as yet we haven't heard one complaint from Joseph and he got falsely accused thrown in prison for about 11 years and he so presented himself that Potiphar gave him charge of everything in his house except his wife and his food the jail keeper put him in charge of all the prisoners And he was recognized by Pharaoh, who considered himself God. He he recognized Joseph as a man in whom the Spirit of God is. So how did Joseph deal with his random, chaotic stressors in his life? He let them make him better. Stronger. So, one of the things that comes along is we realize that sometimes that betterness is for others. Tertullian was the guy who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church doesn't stay the same when there's martyrdom, when there's suffering. The church is a system that benefits by pressure and stresses and so forth. Now, how many of you have ever gone to the gym to work out? You can be honest. It's okay. Now, if you did that for a year and stayed the same, (laughs) that's resilient and robust, though. So we see, even in that, and how how does it work? How does a muscle get stronger? Did you know that there's two ways to work out? You can work out for sarcoplasmic muscle growth, and you can work out for myofibrillar muscle growth. Sarcoplasmic muscle growth make your muscles big, bigger. Myofibrillar works at workouts make your muscles stronger. Isn't that interesting? So bodybuilders do sarcoplasmic workouts. Powerlifters do myofibrillar. Now, just so we understand things right, who's ever heard of rhabdomyolysis? Rhabdomyolysis is where, in this case that we're talking about, because of excessive use or abuse, your muscles break down so far that they release portions of their proteins into the bloodstream which are toxic. They cause kidney failure. And you can actually die from it, from working out too hard. There's this way of working out called CrossFit that for a long time, they had a lot of cases of rhabdomyolysis. Specifically because they worked out too hard. They just did it too hard. But if you work out a little bit less, it's that tearing down of the muscles, the myofibrillar portion of your muscles. Myo means muscle, fibrillar means fibers. Tearing down of the fibers, your muscles build back stronger. They were created to be anti-fragile. They were created for that. Who knows what dendrology is? Ha! Don't you guys love to learn new words? Dendrology is the study of single-stemmed woody plants, otherwise known as trees. Yep. (laughs) Back in the early 1800s, real early 1800s, around 1803 in England, a guy noticed that some trees fell down when it got windy and some didn't. So he decided, I'm gonna test this out and see what it is. So along some of the bluffs and cliffs on the northeast, no, northwest side of England, where all the wind comes in off the Atlantic, he planted a tree about every 30 feet. Some of the trees, he uh, build, built shields all around them so that the entire time of growth, they, ha- they were shielded from the wind. Some of them, he put ropes on and, and guy lines so that they would not fall over in the wind, so that they would be strengthened, he thought, <clears throat> or at least held upright. And some of them, he didn't put any on. So he had all these trees, like 15 or 20 of these trees, and after 20 years, he went and he took all of this, the stuff away from it and let them go for a year. And at the end of the year, all the ones that were inside, inside protective housings had fallen over with the roots pulling up. All of them that had ropes on them had fallen over at the points of the ropes being on them. The highest rope, above that, they broke off. And the ones that stood firm were the ones who were most accosted by random chaotic stressors. So it happens in our muscles. It happens with trees. It happens with all kinds of stuff. Martin Luther. You guys know who Martin Luther is, right? Martin Luther has a quote, a really interesting quote. He says, Reading, prayer, and temptation are necessary to strengthen the minister. Because you get stronger when you resist temptation. Isn't that interesting? You get stronger when you resist temptation. Did you know that temptation, in general... was not considered a negative thing until the Reformation, until after the Reformation. It was seen as a test. That's why in Scripture, the word temptation in some translations is translated as trials. In some translations, it's tests. And in some translations, it's temptations. It's all the same word. The context is what determines <clears throat> the meaning that we extract from our semantic field before us. Now, what happens when you put a-l on the end of a word? Hmm? Okay. In some cases, it can be an adjective, and in some cases, it changes a noun into a verb. So, trial is a noun, right? So it changes a verb into a noun, I mean. Trial is a noun. You take the AL off, what do you have? Try. So, how do you try something? You put it to the test. You test it. So, as we go along in this, we're going to discuss a little bit of that. But my understanding from Scripture is that God intends us to risk it all on him. Which means to me that he created us to be risk takers. And I think that that's demonstrated in the pagan secular world by the things that they do. They try to fulfill that desire to cast out all their cares on him, to risk it all on God by doing things like um, extreme sports, like suicide, like avoiding getting caught, gambling, placing themselves in, in danger foolishly. They do all kinds of things. There's, there's a thing that that is called murder by suicide and there I mean su- murder by suicide, but there's another thing called suicide by cop, where people put their se- selves in a position intentionally to take the risk of getting killed. and you see that a lot. you see it with race car drivers and with stunt plane flyer pilots and um, All kinds of stuff. I don't know if you've seen the the wingsuits now that they're actually putting jet engines on the wingsuits and landing without parachutes. That's pretty amazing. I haven't tried that yet. (laughs) (laughs) But if you look in the dictionary and find the antonym of risk-taking, you'll find some really really interesting things. Fearful. The antonym of risk-taking. Fearful, timid, hesitant, and safe. Isn't that interesting? Fearful. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Timid. We have not received a spirit of timidity, but of love, strength, and a sound mind. Hesitant. Moses asked the children of Israel, why do you hesitate between two opinions? They were hesitant. We're called to be risk takers. I don't know if you've considered the difference between belief and trust, but I have a story to tell you. Two guys, one guy named Charles Blondin and another named Harry Colcord. Those names probably don't ring a bell. But in 1858 and 1859, the two of them got together and Charles Blondin, who is a French acrobat, and Harry Colcord, who was an American agent, decided that they would get all the attention they could by Charles Blondin making the first tight rope walk across Niagara Falls. So they worked on it. The agent went out and advertised it, made all kinds of um, opportunities. In the meantime, Charles built himself a rope long enough to stretch, 1,300 feet, and on one side, on the American side, guess what he tied it to? and What kind? An oak tree, because it was robust. He counted on it staying the same, right? On the other side, on the Canadian side, they secured it to a rock. Because what do rocks do? They stay the same. So they, he trusted himself to resilience and robustness. So he gets out there, and when the day came, 25,000 people were there. Let's say that there was half on, on the Canadian side and half on the American side. 25,000 people. And they did an entry poll when they got in there, found out that, as far as they were, could tell, every single person there was there to see him fall to his death. Every person there came to see him fall to his death. And so, Harry gets up there and he says, Okay, who believes that Charles can walk across on the tightrope? Not a single person raised their hand. He gets out on the tightrope, and by the way, This was before they used safety nets or safety lines. So he was out there by himself. This isn't like slacklining. When you fall off, you fall, what, six inches? (laughs) 198 feet was how far he would have fallen. And he's not that anti-fragile. He probably would not have survived that. But he walks across. And he goes in and he gets a backpack and puts it on, a little hut over there. Puts a backpack on and Harry says, who believes that he can come back? A couple people, maybe. (laughs) And so he gets into the middle. Now this rope has sagged 50 feet. Because they didn't have ropes like we have. So this rope has sagged 50 feet. He gets into the middle. He opens up his backpack. Now this was 1858 or 1859 when he actually did it. And he took a camera out of his backpack. Who remembers what those cameras look like? Big boxes with a flash thing. He took it out, set it up, took a picture of the Canadians, turned around and took a picture of the United States, packed it all back in his backpack and finished his trip across. Okay, so by this time, when Harry says, do you guys think that he can push a wheelbarrow across? A lot of people were, yeah, he can do it. So he did. He got on the other side, picked up a bicycle. <laughs> and he rode his bicycle all the way across. And by the time he got to the end, I think he went across 13 times. And by the time he got to the last time across, Harry says, how many People believed that he could carry somebody across on his back. And everybody raised their hands. And he says, I need a volunteer. <laughs> and how many people do you think raised their hands? Zero. That's the difference between belief and trust. And Harry crawled on his back and he carried him across. That's the difference between belief and trust. Do you guys trust God or just believe in him? Because the demons also believe and tremble, it says in James. But what does it look like to trust? Well, it looks like two things. It looks like risk-taking and obedience. Look at some of the risk-takers in history. Noah. God says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's going to rain and the floods will come. Noah had ever heard of an ark. He had never heard of rain and had never heard of a flood. That's quite a risk to take. It took him 125 years to build the ark. He lost all of his friends. Nobody thought he was doing the right thing. That was a risky thing to do. But it says that Noah did all that God commanded him. Risk-taking and obedience. How about um, Abraham? God comes to Abraham. What does does Abraham do before he knows God? He's a pagan, idol-worshipping, moon-worshipping, heathen guy. God comes and says... I want you to leave everything and come to a place that I'm not going to tell you where it is. And so Abraham it says, went out not knowing. And we find out in Hebrews Noah in Genesis 6:22 it says Noah did this and he did all that God commanded him. In Hebrews 8 11:8 it says Abraham obeyed when he was called and went out not knowing he risked everything and obeyed moses here he is on the back side of the desert been there 40 years now a coward at heart fleeing because he was going to get caught for doing something wrong <laughs> And he's seen a bush before, and he's seen a fire before. But it says there appeared a bush on fire that was not consumed. So he said, oh, this is weird. And he went over, and a voice came out of it. First time he'd heard God's voice. And God says, I want you to go back to this place where they want to kill you. Isn't that Interesting. Talk about risk-taking. What did Moses do? Or do Exodus 40.16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. What would your lives look like if you trusted God? What risks would you be taking and what obediences would be evidencing themselves? Now, We find some stuff in Scripture. In in James 1, verses 2, 2, 3, and 4, I guess it is, it says that, uh, how does it go, James 1, 2, If you have a chance, don't get old. What does James 1, 2 say? One. Yeah, my brethren, count it all joy. When, not if, when. When you fall into various trials, and that word can also mean tests and temptations and tribulations. They're promised to us. Jesus promised those things. He promised that those things would follow us. So if you have a gospel that says, come to Jesus, he'll solve your problems. And you come to Jesus and you have worse problems than you ever had before. What are you going to do with Jesus? You're going to consider him a liar because somebody told you a lie about the gospel. And so, my brethren, count it all joy. Woo, that means leap for joy. Leap for joy. When you fall into various Trials. And then he uses a, a word, knowing this. Knowing this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire or complete, lacking nothing. What is God's means of making us mature, complete, and lacking nothing? Hmm? Random, chaotic stressors that we respond to the right way. <clears throat> now, if you remember, <clears throat> there was a place in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3 2. It says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. This is the church at Sardis. He says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. What's the implication of things remaining? That there are some things gone. There are some things gone. But he says, strengthen the things that remain. And then he says, why? For I have not found your deeds, the issue of obedience, completed in the sight of my God. I have not found your deeds completed. That's why you need to wake up and strengthen what remains. So I say to you guys, You need to wake up and strengthen what remains. And how do you do it? You do it by responding the right way to all of these things that God intended to strengthen you with. One of the favorite verses that people have is Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things. Do you know that? If you do, then why do you avoid all the things that God wants to use to strengthen you? So let's take a look at some of those things. I made a list. I was talking to Bill about this the other day. I made a list. <clears throat> I evaluated my own life, or I tried to, for the things that I have, have done and have found myself tempted to do about things that we avoid. Things that I love to avoid. Things like Danger. I went to, I've always been afraid of the water. And that that makes it so that I avoid being accosted by a lake. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I can handle a tub or a shower pretty well. But I decided one time that I was going to have to deal with it head on. And so when I was in the Army, I went to Army scuba school. That was a disaster almost. (laughs) But I addressed that head on. But there's been other things like difficulty. Do we accept difficulty as God's means of making us stronger and better and more like him? Just by responding the right way to it. Counting it all joy. Suffering, persecution, discomfort, embarrassment, hard work, doing without. Restricted input and output. In other words, food, audio, video, company. Things like that. Responsibility. Accountability. Why do we resist these things? Why do we avoid things? Blame. So easy to blame. We'll talk about that a little bit better. Correction, duty, obedience, change. How about variation? And you say, well, what do you mean variation? How many of you live in a house? A lot of you do. How many of you have central heating and air conditioning in your house? How many have a thermostat on it so that you can set it so that the temperature doesn't vary? Why? Because you want to avoid variation. (laughs) But did you know that you're healthier if your body gets cold sometimes and gets hot sometimes? That you actually lose strength and energy by having a consistent temperature? But that's what we choose. Who knows that when you get up in the morning when it's really, really hot, that you feel different than when you get up when it's just the right temperature. Just good enough to get up and sit down and rest and have a cup of coffee and think you're having a quiet time and things like that. But man, you get up and it's cold. I don't know if you ever saw Richard the Lionheart, the movie that has uh whoever the guy in, uh, Patrick, uh, uh, the guy who was the captain of the Starship Enterprise, whatever his name was, he wasn't a, a thespian. He was a uh, Shakespearean actor. And so he, he acted this. And when they filmed it, they filmed it in real conditions. So he would get up in the morning, walk over to a big bowl of water, and crack the ice on the water and pour it over his head so that he could wake up. Just try that sometime. (laughs) I mean, now we have... How many many wake-up tones do you have on your phone? (laughs) And which ones do you use, if you use them? Intrusions, interruptions, commitments... How many of you avoid commitment? So I'd like what I'd I'd like to have you guys do is evaluate yourselves that way. What are the things that I avoid that are going to happen whether you avoid them or not? But because you're intending to avoid them, it gives you a different attitude to them than if you welcome them as the things that God is blessing you with to make you stronger and faster and better and more like him. So what are some of the ways that we avoid? These are the ways that I tried avoiding things. I would rename things. I'd call it something other than it was so I could justify avoiding it. I would, for example, I could I could um, rename blame shifting as um, self-defense or something like that. <laughs> uh, redefining things. We do that all the time. Um, I've studied and taught on the believability of the Bible for quite a while, and I found out that there are really consistent characteristics of the attacks on the Bible, and most of them are that they redefine the Bible and then attack that redefinition. For example, is the Bible a history book? No, it isn't. It contains history, but it's not a history book. Therefore, we can't judge it as a history book. For example, we look at the book of Acts. And and Acts seems like a history book. We say, oh yeah, Acts, that's a a history book. That's a history of the early church for the first 50 or 60 years of the early church. No, it contains history. It's a pretty poorly written history book. Hardly mentions the book of the church at Rome at all, which was a very main church in the early church. Hardly mentions it all in the book of Acts. We know a lot more about other churches than the Church of Rome, so it was really not very well written. But if you look at it, you'll find out some things about the book of Acts that we can help identify it with. Who knows what an amicus is? Who's ever heard of a friend of the court letter? Got you, didn't I? (laughs) So, when Luke wrote Luke and Acts, he addressed it to a guy called Most Honorable Theophilus. And if you do your research, you'll find out that in his day, the term Most Honorable was a formal term referring to a judge or a prosecuting or trying lawyer. And so you begin to look at it and you realize there was a system to Luke's writing because Peter did everything that Paul did and Peter did not get taken to prison the way that Paul did. And so Theophilus was apparently the person who was going to be doing the trial because he was the lawyer, the judge. And so Luke wrote an amicus. Now, an amicus doesn't cover all the history. It covers what needs to be there as a friend of the court letter that would cause the court to recognize that things aren't as the accuser says. So we have the book of Acts. Does it have history in it? Yeah, it has history in it. Did you know that there's homeschool um, curriculum that uses the Bible as the teacher for homes, as the entire text? That the only text you have for the entire 12 years of homeschool is the Bible. You're going to be hard-pressed to get a quality education doing that because that's not what it was intended to be. It wasn't intended to be teaching you how to build cabinets and what the stoichiometric mixture of the uh, fuel-air ratio in your airplane is. You know, you just can't learn that stuff from the Bible. So we redefine it. We repurpose it. We blame shift it, make excuses, run away, beat around the bush, skirt the issues, equivocate. We have self-pity. Three times in my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers has, this, has a phrase that I just love. Self-pity is of the devil. Don't do it. Hypocrisy, shortcuts, laziness, acceptance of weakness. Well, that's just who I am well, I can't help my personality. I, I have a gift of prophecy. I've never been strong in that area before. You Can't expect me to be that way now. Actually, if you say that, you're avoiding the very thing that God wants, you to, wants to do to help you be strong in that area. You say, well, I've never been strong in that area before. I think I'll just avoid that. That's not one of my gifts. Like, Wisdom. Well, that's not one of my gifts. (laughs) That's right. I tried. Here's my favorite one. Just a single word. Whatever. (laughs) Perfect. I have also tried this thing that I call ornamentation. Self-ornamentation. That's where I decorate myself to look like something other than I am. For example, sarcoplasmic muscle building. Well, look at how strong that guy is. No, he's just got big muscles. <laughs> so somebody will ask me a question, I'll say, well, I'm thinking about that. Or I'll say things like, I'm praying about it. Have you ever told somebody you're going to pray for them? And not long after that, Situation comes up where you find out that you should have prayed for him, but you didn't. say, well, I intended to do it. I was thinking about doing it. I promised to do it. To be willing. How significant is being willing if you never do it? If I am willing to go to the mission field and I'm called to go to the mission field and I don't go to the mission field, what's it called? Disobedience, right? But we can easily say, yeah, I'm willing. I'm willing to do that. I'm hoping. I'm waiting. I'm, and then I do substitution. Substitution is the, is the m- most interesting one. I can remember when the Lord convicted me at a sermon that I heard that I should be, become a prayer. I should start praying. And so I went out and I bought E.M. Bounds Complete Works on Prayer and read it. But I didn't change my prayer habits. I just substituted knowing about prayer for being a prayer. Researching, studying, going to seminars and conferences, rationalizing instead of repenting. Just believing instead of trusting. Overachieving. Like the church of Ephesus, who had their act together, except they lost their first love. They were the, one of the very few churches of those seven that God wrote to that, had, that did everything right. Good doctrine, good discernment, good actions, good works. He said, I have one thing, though, You don't love me anymore. The urgent for the best. The approval of man rather than of God. The object of satisfaction as something other than God. The reason that Paul was able to say, I can be content in any circumstance because he was only content with Jesus. didn't matter his circumstance. He was content with Jesus. He could have everything or nothing. He could have it all. He could have nothing. And he was content because his circumstance was irrelevant. And you can see, reading in 2 Corinthians, that he was bombarded (laughs) by random chaotic stressors like having his head smashed with a stone and being cast into the ocean and on the deep for three days and bitten by a viper. Well, which of those things caused him to be weaker? Not one of them. He responded the right way. Last one I want to talk about is a little bit difficult. I call it the victim mentality. Seems to be rampant. I just happened to bring along with me some books. This one is called The Culture of Complaint, The Fraying of America. This one is called a Nation of Victims, The Decay of the American Character. This one is a little bit different. This is called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. That's an interesting thought to realize that American Christianity is promoting an adolescent form of Christianity rather than an adult form of Christianity and they promote it on a regular basis. And for some of you who don't know, the term adolescent came into our vocabulary in 1931. Shortly thereafter, it was also added, or we also added the term teenager as the popular form of the word adolescent. And it referred to people from age 11 to age 13. In the most recent DSM, some of you might know what the DSM, that's the um Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health. Now get this. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health where they define adolescence. Why do you suppose they define adolescence in a manual health, in a mental health diagnostic manual? Especially when they describe it as the age eleven to forty. But not to be outdone by the colonies, Britain says eleven to forty-one. In search of the eternal adolescent, it's called big boy toys and things like that. So the definition of victor or a victim in earliest use, victim was a sacrifice to a de- deity, notably it was a voluntary position. So right from the beginning, being a victim has been a spiritual issue, a sacrifice to a, a, a deity, a false idol, and it has been a voluntary position. Okay? In other words, it was a voluntary act of pride and idolatry. The victor was just the opposite. It was one who chose not to be ruled over and dominated sacrificially. Joseph and Daniel are some good examples of that. Now in John 5... John 5, verse 5, talks about Jesus meeting the guy at the well who was a crippled guy, couldn't walk. And it says that he asked him a question. He said, do you want to be healed? What are the two possible answers to a yes-no question? (laughs) And what did the guy say? He said, I would like to be healed, but this guy over here always gets down there first and I'm never able to get to the water on time. He didn't say yes. He told a story about why it wasn't his fault that he wasn't healed yet. That's evidence of victimhood. Ask somebody a question. Is your business doing well? they can say yes or no, or tell you a story. And the story almost invariably places the blame on somebody else. Because a victim is one who says, others are the problem, I am not to blame, I'm entitled to be pitied, and there is no hope. So God has given us all that we need, not only to be robust and resilient, but he's promised that if we respond right, He will make us stronger, better, complete, entire, and lacking nothing. So I want you to be people who trust God, not just believe. I want you to be people who cast your cares on God. Take the risk of obedience. And don't remain as you are. Don't remain as you are. One of the characteristics of life that every life has, every form of life has this characteristic, It's called growth. And growth is always in one direction, toward maturity. And maturity always has a main outcome, fruit bearing. And that's what God has called us to do, to bear fruit, for him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are such a God as this, that even though we may only have some things that remain, you are willing to use those things to make us perfect, complete, and entire, lacking nothing. And so we rejoice in you. We give thanks to you. We bless you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.